Welcome to Refrangible. I'm your host, Jonifer Fields. And I'm Jonah Chester. In our first episode of Season 2, we posed the question, who wears what and why? We wanted to explore why folks dress the way they do and what happens when a third party uses clothing to either impose an identity or steal someone else's. As we were planning out that episode, we realized there was more to this discussion than we could possibly fit into a single episode or even a single season. We decided to break the topic into two segments. So today we're looking at the roots of American clothing and how those roots impact our modern day relationship with clothes. And when it comes to traditional clothing in America, you'll find few people as dedicated to that niche topic as historical reenactors. Pining for a time that was both beautiful and horrible is complicated. It's worth examining what goes into historical reenactment and what that art form, and it is an art form, can reveal about our troubling past and convoluted present. And that's a topic Neil Hurst spends a large part of his workday pondering. Hearst is the Associate Curator of Costume and Textiles at Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, deep in the heart of colonial America. I think clothing is one of those few things that um, is still very relatable to ourselves today in, in the 21st century. You know, our ancestors whether it's our grandparents or great-grandparents or five times great-grandparents, we still have that sort of shared experience of, of wearing clothing. So I think my interest stems from that. Uh, it's just that the clothing has changed. We still cover, obviously, the naked body <laughs> one way or another, uh, but the fashions and, and styles have changed. So I, th- I think probably that's what has drawn me to uh, historic costume or historic dress. But it's one thing to do modern day dress. It's one thing to make a garment for yourself. It's another to go back into a time period that was that was contentious and sometimes problem. Well, oftentimes problematic. Like what? I mean, you're especially. I'm thinking in terms of you working with the reenactors at Colonial Williamsburg mm-hmm. and getting modern day contemporary people dressed up or dressed out or putting them in historical garments. Yeah, it, it, that certainly can can pose a challenge for, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. You know, clothing, too, is also very personal. And so individuals, whether it's in the 21st century um, or or in earlier periods, you know, we, we highly personalize our clothing to reflect ourselves. Uh, and so it, it's hard to then sort of um, make individuals who work for us here at Colonial Williamsburg to then not personalize what you wear every single day, but to fit into what what we find is documentable for most Virginian society uh, in the in the 18th century. But it also, you know, uh, sort of opens you up to a lot of questions from the public, you know, and sometimes the public doesn't all the, the sort of personal barrier, let's say, uh, can be quickly lost because they feel like, you know, they can then uh, get closer to you or touch you or, and you may not like that in your 21st century um, thoughts on, on, you know, personal space. So, so it it is very difficult in many, uh, in, in many situations. That's interesting that when, that for some members of the public, when you put them in historical garments, that the individual becomes an object, becomes, Absolutely. And it's, you know, that, that whole loss of um, personal freedom in more ways than one comes into play. 
It does. And, you know, I, sometimes it's just the gentle reminder <laughs> that, you know, I, I am a 21st century person wearing 18th century clothing or, you know, please don't do that. I don't think in many cases it's meant to harm, but they're just they become so interested that they kind of forget those things occasionally. Well, it's a chance to honestly reach back into history and touch it. It's sure. a chance to interact with someone who comes from a time period that if you're at the if you're at the location, you clearly have some desire to know more about it. Absolutely. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, folks are so, um, you know, they're so used to the types of materials that that we wear in the 21st century. Uh, and so that also that tactile experience of feeling what something would have felt like for for a person to wear 200 years ago or 300 years ago. I think that also comes into play a lot for for our guests here at Colonial Williamsburg. Neil, fabric is fabric. Silk is silk. Cotton is cotton. How has that changed? How has the texture of the fabric changed? Or what is that change that makes those garments so invitingly tactile or invite the, the sense of touch? What is it about them, do you think? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I think a lot of it is, um, at least what I find in, in our antique collection here at Williamsburg, is is the quality. You know, our, the quality, you know, I think we expect for uh, garments being made 200 years ago to be uh, inferior. But in fact, it's generally much more higher quality in its production than uh, what we find for textiles today. Obviously, we don't have the, the nylons and the lycras and all the synthetic fibers, but um, they had a huge host and range of, of fabrics, just as, as we have today. In fact, I, I think it could be easily argued that they had more broader range of fabrics if we exclude the, the man-made fibers than probably what's even available to us today in the 21st century. Wow, really? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with what, what a machine can do and what a machine can't do. You know, because I think it's important to always remember that Machines, when they're invented, they are invented to imitate what the hand can do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the machine is doing it any better. It might do it quicker, um, but the hand has a unique ability to uh, and, and experience with with whether it's spinning or carding, you know, just that that learned experience that an individual has for doing it over and over and over again, uh, something that a machine never has the ability to learn. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Neil, you talked about the hand of the maker. Who is making these garments for these people during this time period? Because, And we're talking about, what, 18th, 19th century? Yeah. So, so here at Williamsburg, um, in our historic area, we primarily focus in the uh, early part of the 1770s. But it does vary from, from building to building. Um, but essentially, um, for individuals who are living in the 18th century, you have a couple choices for for having your clothing made. For the sort of free white individuals, even free African-American individuals who are living in the city, um, they are generally having their clothing made for them. Most folks don't have the experience to be able to cut garments out. And that's really the key difference is being able to cut the garment out. It's not actually the sewing because most people can, can handle that fairly easily. Uh, but the, the the learned ability to uh, measure and cut and fit is is the uh, is the is the trade itself. So you have basically two trades. Um, you have the tailor's trade, and the tailors are primarily making for men, with a few things for for ladies. And those things are 
um, those, those objects are measured. So they're taking measurements off the body and then making flat patterns. And then the women are generally going to uh, another trade called the Mantua Maker. And the Mantua Maker is a trade that develops in the late, late 17th, early 18th century, where they're taking lengths of fabric, draping it directly onto the body. It's then pleated, pinned, tucked, taken off, and then stitched together. Uh, but what is interesting, though, is is they're um, you know they're they're really concerned about um, sort of the the reuse of these garments. So you might, for example, have a garment made, let's say 1765, and then you know maybe five six years later the trim is kind of maybe looking a little sad or it's out of style. You may take that gown back out and have it recut or remade into a new style. Um, you know, it's really unusual to find gowns that survive um, that have not been remade in some some way or form. Most of the gowns in our collection have been sort of altered within the time period, you know, not not later on. So I'm wondering, Vince, so when we're talking about people, the colonizers, and we're talking about them enslaving people, are we when do we start seeing enslaved people making garments for I want to say they're captors, the colonizers. The sure, they're owners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it, we see it um, fairly early on, I imagine. You know, um, you know, the records, particularly here in Virginia, are kind of scant um, simply because of the Civil War, which destroyed a lot of the early material in, in many of the, of the counties down uh, by here in Williamsburg. Um, but definitely in the 18th century, we find a variety of... Um, kind of different situations. You know, we have individuals, um, you know, let's say large plantation here in, in Virginia uh, with uh, enslaved Africans that are living on it. Um, master and the master of the plantation itself is providing clothing um, to, to the uh, enslaved who are working in the fields. Now, we do have some really good information from uh, individuals like Robert Carter III, um, he was incredible in terms of noting everything. Uh, he, he was really fastidious in his um, note taking. So he, we know that, for example, he is providing clothing twice a, twice in the year for his uh, enslaved field hands. Uh, and so generally in June and then in December. And the clothing is seasonally based. So they're sort of getting a spring summer set of clothing and then a um, winter set of clothing. Now, the question, though, remains who's making it. Now, sometimes we find that tailors uh, are going out to these plantations and doing all the cutting, and then individuals within that enslaved community are then sewing it together um, for for uh, the enslaved community there. And the household, it, it can be a little bit different. We do find things like cast-off gowns from the mistress. Um, so, so gowns that maybe perhaps aren't in fashion anymore or um, just aren't being worn are then sort of passed down to the enslaved members of the household because they, they are definitely dressed differently. At least here in Virginia, we find that um, we do find uh, you do find advertisements for uh, maid servants who have the skill of, of sewing and, and uh, gown making. Um, but it just depends on the situation. Um, and I think it varies quite a bit from, from household to household. So when you see gowns that have been made by enslaved people, do you see 
influences from their culture and the garments that are made? I think in the 18th century, it, it becomes difficult to see that. Um, because I think, you know, if if you are the utmost of fashionable individuals living in Virginia, they are generally not even shopping here in Virginia. They are ordering directly out of London. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that their money is tied to tobacco, which is being sold in, in London itself. So they have sort of uh, factors that are working for them that handle their money back in England. So I think if anything, you're probably finding more of these uh, servants who are trained in the sort of art and the mystery of gown making or maybe even millinery, which is making the accessories, um, doing the mending and repairing uh, and maybe refashioning of the gown. But the initial construction is probably done if you are, again, that sort of top tier of Virginia um, generally being done in London and then being imported here <laughs> to to Virginia. So like Mrs. Carter is probably not going to Williamsburg uh, to have a new gown made. She's going to write to her London factor, you know, just like Martha Washington did prior to the outbreak of the American Revolution. Obviously, the, the revolution is going to have a huge impact on this. The way uh, that people are going shopping, it's going to really impact that, particularly for the for the upper crust of society. They can no longer go to London and and buy the 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 height of fashion. So, Neil, when we think about construction of these garments, I you know have I've been sewing since, woo, I've been sewing since I was about nine years old when a friend of mine had a so, had a swimming suit that I wanted. <laughs> And my mother told me that I would have that I wasn't old enough to wear that style of suit. So one day when she was at work, I went and got her. Now, don't Neil, it was a swimming suit. Why did I get a towel? I went into her towel stash of her fancy towels and actually recreated the suit using terry cloth towels. And she was so impressed that I didn't get in trouble. (laughs) so that's how long i've been sewing and so i i feel like and i don't know if i'm on the right track but has the the what would you call it the process have the steps changed has the way that you that you sew have those things changed has the technology and the method basically remain the same and the difference is the time period and the availability of these fabrics? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great question and, uh, and a great point. You know, I think the single biggest change that's going to take place is the invention of the sewing machine. Of course, uh, Elias Howe is credited with that in the 1840s. And that is really going to change how these garments are constructed. So prior to 1840, there is uh, a, a really different way that, that garments are constructed because the sewing machine can only do it, again, as we discussed earlier, um, it can only do it one way, you know, whereas if you're doing it by hand, you could be doing multiple sort of things at the same time with a single stitch. Um, so... So the machine's going to really change how these things are put together. And it's going to take a while for individuals to really figure out the best way to use a sewing machine because it, it, there's there's just practices in terms of the, the order of, of putting garments together that are done by hand, which are completely different uh, compared to by doing it by machine.
My name is Simone and I'm a relatively new historical costumer. It is something that I'm fascinated with, kind of my new addiction. Years ago in the 90s, I started watching historical uh, period films like Sense and Sensibility and I always just loved the gowns and the grandeur of it all and was always dreaming of an opportunity to go to a ball but just to dress up and have fun but really didn't see that that was ever going to be an opportunity and then just more and more I started seeing on social media posts where people were actually dressing this way and so it's just it's just something that I've been watching and watching and watching from the sidelines, but wanting to be a part of. And in the past probably year and a half, I've moved towards that direction to actually kind of step into that clothing. I'm not a reenactor. Um, and so I'm studying more the history of the clothing and staying a little bit away at this time from the things that were happening, although obviously we know what was happening. Um, and at one point my husband found this plantation and had invited, the head said like, let's go do this. And I was like, I I can't do that. So I, I'm, I recognize obviously that, oh, it's just complicated. It's hard to say. Right now I'm just enjoying the beauty and the, the pageantry of it um, and joining some organizations where I'm seeing that there may be some diversity issues um, just from social media things, but I haven't personally been going into and just like looking at the history. My family is from Barbados, which is in the Caribbean. And so I have been like trying to like research, like what would someone have been wearing that was a person of color in those time frames, and trying to see that and learning that in New Orleans in the 1700s, people of color had to always have their hair covered. And so trying to look at that and say, now if I'm going to be doing historical costuming, what if I pull in those parts where I'm being authentic, um, but not necessarily not getting to wear the pretty dresses. I wanna wear the pretty dresses. And there's also something about thinking that, okay, maybe at that time frame all of us didn't get to wear these dresses, but what would they think about the fact that we can wear them now? And I don't know, like there's a part that's like doing them justice that way and, and claiming it, that I can wear those gowns that maybe you weren't able to wear then, but but then they did wear them because there's paintings and there's 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 evidence that they existed. So I am a newbie sewer, newbie seamstress. Two years ago, I asked that I get a sewing machine for Christmas and my husband got that for me. I'd only taken a home ec class back in high school a long time ago. So I have a very basic understanding of the sewing machine. Like, how am I gonna do this? And constantly looking at websites and finding patterns and um, a friend of mine, um, is a wonderfully gifted seamstress here in Texas where I live now and 
I just asked her, would you help me? And so I had purchased some dresses that were pre-made, um, but this most recent dress was the first one that's been made um, by me with a lot of help. So now I think my goal is to try to do one by myself. It's kind of this funny thing because it's like, well, where can I wear it? I want to wear it. And then people are, people in the groups that I see, they're like, wear it anywhere. Go to the grocery store, do it. I have not done it yet, um, but I'm, I'm very proud of it. and very proud that, that I was part of the making and I just keep, um, keep preparing to do the, this next one that, that I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and it, it'll be rusty, but it's just fun. And, and part of this is just fun for me um, and not making it more than that. I'm just having fun. I feel like it becomes mine. It doesn't feel costumey. It just feels wonderful. My name is Kate Dallas. I'm the curator and exhibit developer at Old World Wisconsin. I manage period clothing. So for Old World Wisconsin, it's more about facilitation and facilitators. We're not really reenactors in that we're not third person. I mean, we're third person people. We're not first person characters. Um, like you might find at a historic um, Civil War battlefield reenactment kind of thing. It's a little bit different philosophy. Um, so at Old World, we have a clothing department. We outfit, depending on the season, between, I would say, 30 and 100 people per season in historic clothing that, that ranges from the 1840s all the way up to the now 1930s. So that's a huge span of time for clothing to change in. And um, we make a lot of our clothing, but there are some things that we purchase. We purchase uh, men's trousers, for instance, because if you look at a time cost effectiveness, it's more effective for us to purchase those. They last longer than the ones we make in-house. Um, but we do have a small clothing shop where we construct most of the women's garments. So all those dresses and the petticoats and the corsets that they wear are made in-house. And on average, how long does it take to make a, a set costume or does it really vary based on the complexity? Yeah, exactly. Some of them, if you think about those fancy bustle dresses, the, one with the, the ones with the big poofy backside and the multiple layers, something like that might take um, many hours to make versus a simple work dress, which is going to be much shorter. But a lot of it depends on um, the skill of the seamstress who's working at it. You know, we use modern equipment behind the scenes in a way um, that is very particular. We use our modern serger and our modern sewing machines and things like that in ways that get us the speed we need and the efficiency in making these costumes. But they, from the surface, they, they look the same as the clothing would be if it had been made by a machine in the 1850s. So um, visually, there's not much a difference. But for us, it's all about saving time. During the winter time, is that when you really kind of uh, suss out, okay, we need 
30 costumes for this coming season. We're going to be putting on X, Y, and Z exhibit. Do you have it all planned out or is it a year round process to be creating those to kind of go with the change of the seasons and what have you? Yeah, it's, it's a year round job for sure. And um, right now, in fact, we're posting for a period clothing person, a coordinator person to fill that job. It's a huge challenge. Think about this. We don't know from season to season what size people will be working for us. So we have to maintain a range of clothing within our very limited storage space. But we also have to be supremely flexible because when we hire those people, if we don't have the right gear for them to wear in the right in the location that they're assigned to, we have to create it. So there's some rapid fire sewing going on at different times of year, if you can imagine that. And other times it's more planned out. It would be terrific if we could plan it all and know in advance that we had enough clothes to fit every permutation of the human body, but we we just don't. But, you know, we've got the period clothing, but we also have to maintain a line of what I think of as costumes to fit some of those historic programs, like our Krampus costume is certainly not a historic outfit, but our period clothing department manages the creation of that, or the Yule Tomta. Those characters appear for our Home for the Holidays event and are much loved, but require a different sort of approach to the period clothing than the rest of the season does. Now, I notice you're, you're very particular with how you use the, the delineation between period clothing and costume. And I hope I haven't committed a faux pas by calling something a costume there. Oh, no. And I think every, <laughs> every historical site uses different terminology for that. At Old World, we call it period clothing. To differentiate between that, that is something we are making from a pattern that is pulled directly from history. So for instance, it's something that appears in a historic photograph, or it's actually a reprint of a pattern that was, say, developed in 1860 something, or it's a modern pattern that's been created to mimic the old style of clothing. So we are very careful about the sources that we use for, so we know our patterns are authentic in appearance. We're careful to use natural fibers that are correct for the time periods that we're showing our clothes in. But costuming is a different story. For us, costuming is that more creative, spontaneous creation. It touches on, might touch on historic images like uh, lithographs or postcards or something from the past, but we have more creative license with that. So if I, if I could offer perhaps a, an oversimplified analogy here, period clothing is historically accurate down to as close a detail as you can create, whereas costuming is more just, um, I can't think of a better term here, but it's more just selling a vibe. It's it's the overall... It's theatrical, right? Ah, okay, got it. Think of it as a theater costume. But as I said, that's the way we think of it at Old World. I wouldn't generalize that to other historic locations. I want to stress that we have a thought very carefully carefully about using period clothing because it's a huge expense, right? There's a lot of not just staff time involved in taking care of it, but space. It's expensive for an organization like us to run period clothing. So why do we do it in the first place? For one thing, it clothing is like one 
touch point for our relationship with guests out on site. Everyone who visits Old World Wisconsin has experience with clothing, right? So it's a natural conversation starter for us that can link to all kinds of topics about clothing in the past, comparing it with clothing in the present. But it's also kind of a springboard for this conversations in speculating about the future. You know, how does clothing affect the way we live? What does um, clothing that restricts your movement mean about the social world around you? What what happens when um, women are freed up from wearing corsetry? It's got bigger impacts than just what you have on your body at any particular moment. So for us, that's that's really an important reason for us to keep period clothing. It sets the tone, right? It's part of this bigger immersive package. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. Tune in next time when we are examining death rites and how baby doll funerals can reflect our own relationship with the Grim Reaper. Until then, I'm Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Jonathan Fields. We'll see you next time.